The year was 1952 or 53, around in that area. A um, good friend of mine, a man named Dick Still, was being held prisoner of war in Korea. He was actually held just across the border in China by, as he called them, the Red Chinese. Dick and I talked a number of times um, about his time as a POW. He was actually the last Marine Corps POW released from the Korean conflict. And um, Dick told me a story several times about being held in prison there by the Chinese. One of the stories that he told frequently was a story of a Christmas that he celebrated there. And... Um, the story was essentially, the gist of it was that there was a, a British chaplain that was being held with them, and uh, as Christmas rolled around, this British chaplain had offered to hold services for them, and um, they all agreed that that would be a good thing, and so they got together there in their room, and um, Dick would frequently describe the room, and he said there was always a red hue cast when the sun was out because the Chinese would have their flags flying. Typically, they would cover the windows with them, and so the room would just be a kind of this reddish color. And he said that they were celebrating Christmas. They were having their service. They were in the midst of a hymn. They were singing. And the door swung open and in came Chinese guards. And um, he said they had, he called them their burp guns. So these short, stocky weapons. And they came in with their burp guns and um, and they fanned out around the room. And, and the guard, the head guard, told all of the prisoners to stop singing. And Dick said they continued their hymn. And several more times he asked them to stop singing, and they continued singing until finally he told his, he turned and looked at his fellow guards and told them to fire. And they didn't. And they continued to sing their hymn. Dick said the head guards turned, he swiveled on his heel, and he walked out. And as they finished their hymn, the other guards lowered their weapons and turned and followed the shamed, embarrassed head guard out of the room. And Dick said, as he recounted that story, that he had never been so scared, he had never felt so much fear in all his life, and at the same time, so much peace. This morning, we're in John chapter 20, verse 19. John chapter 20, verse 19. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and he stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And after he said this, he showed them his hands and side, and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Let's pray. Father, we would pause this morning as we come before your word. We need your aid that we would understand it. Holy Spirit, we need your work 
that it would be applied to us, that we would leave here today changed by it for our good and for your glory. And so we pray, may our meditations upon your words and may the words of my lips concerning it be acceptable in your sight for your glory. Amen. So we're going to talk about this passage this morning under the title, The Risen Savior. I've got an outline for you in your bulletin. You can follow along. And we're going to talk about his peace, which grounds us, his power, which enables us, and his purpose, which guides us. So let's get the scene, okay? So here's the scene. The scene is, it's Christmas Eve, or Christmas, wrong holiday. It's Easter evening. Jesus has risen from the grave. He's appeared to Mary Magdalene. And, and it is the end of that first day of the week. It's, it's Sunday evening. And the disciples are gathered together. And John gives us some important little tidbits of information. He tells us that they're gathered together in a room behind a locked door. And the reason that the door is locked, John tells us, because they feared the Jews. So you can imagine, right? This mob that had welcomed them and welcomed Jesus into town just a few days earlier had turned angry and they had crucified Jesus. And having crucified Jesus, no doubt the disciples thought to themselves, well, um, we could be next. And so with fear, they are in hiding. And so they're together in this room behind a locked door for fear of the Jews. And he tells us a little bit more. He tells us that Jesus came and he stood among them. Jesus came and he stood among them. He didn't open the door. He didn't pick the lock. He appeared. He came and he met with them and he showed himself to them. And John tells us that when they saw his hands and his side, the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And then he gave them a message. Very short. We're going to chew it up into these three parts. His peace, his power, and his purpose. But you'll see right away his peace which grounds us. Jesus announces twice, two times in this very short passage, peace be with you. Now, when we generally talk about the idea of peace, we usually think about it in terms of uh, freedom from disturbance. Uh, The dictionary says quiet and, and tranquility. So when we think about peace, we almost always think of it as the absence of something. It's fairly common in a lot of language. Indians in Ecuador and Bolivia use a word for peace that literally translates to sit down in one's heart. For them, peace is the opposite of running ragged and and running around in the midst of constant anxiety. The Indians of Mexico often define peace as a quiet heart. Those are beautiful ways to put it. They don't mesh really well with the biblical idea of peace, however. The biblical idea of peace is much fuller than just the mere absence. The Indians of Guatemala define peace as quiet goodness. You see that? 
quiet goodness. It's not the absence. Now it's the presence of something. And that gets more to the heart of the biblical idea. The biblical idea of peace in the Bible focuses around the Old Testament word shalom, the Hebrew word shalom. The Greek word irene is closely associated to that and really captures some of the same essence. Shalom has at least four aspects to it. First, there's a wholeness of life and body, good health mentally, good health physically, good health spiritually. There's a right relationship aspect between two parties. So in the Old Testament, shalom is often talked about when there's a covenant that's made. A relationship is when two parties are brought together, there's shalom. That means that the relationship is right, it's whole, it's together. You see, it's, it's not just the absence of hostility. Now it's two parties coming together, working in the same direction. Then there's the idea of shalom that has uh, the aspect of prosperity, success, and fulfillment. And finally, there's the familiar idea, and that is um, victory, an absence of hostilities. You take all of those, you put them together, and you have that fully orbed biblical picture of what peace is. Not just an absence, but a presence. Now you think about that. You think about the situation in which these men found themselves in, and the idea that biblical peace doesn't focus on the absence of trouble. It's unrelated to circumstances. So there can be all sorts of things happening around outside of you, but you can be at peace. You can be right mentally and physically and spiritually. You can have a right relationship with God and others, and the world can be going to pieces. There are a number of biblical illustrations of this. You probably have illustrations in your own life in which you had lots of things swirling around you, and yet you found yourself at peace. There's the story of Jesus. He's on the boat in the Sea of Galilee with his disciples. A storm brews up. It's a terrible, terrible storm. And in the midst of all of that, the disciples are in complete meltdown mode. And what is Jesus doing? He's asleep. He's at peace. Why? Because he knows that everything is right in the world. He knows that he can wake up from that slumber and he can calm the storm. He knows that he can conquer anything that he is the author of creation. Is the Apostle Paul in prison? And he could say, be at peace, as he wrote his letter to the Philippians. There's James, who could tell fellow believers to consider it pure joy when you endure trials. Why? Because they're at peace. It wasn't the cessation of hostilities. It was that they were right, whole, mind, body, right relationships, right with God. Knowing that you and the creator of the universe are on the same page. That no longer is there a, uh, no longer are you an enemy of God, but you're a friend of God because of the work that Jesus has done. So when Jesus appears to his disciples following his crucifixion, clearly in their world, In their mind, everything was not right in the world. 
as the disciples are there and they're in that room, they're scared. They are literally scared for their lives. Not knowing what it is that's going to happen. Thinking to themselves, we've given all of our time and effort and energy to this guy named Jesus. We thought, we thought he was the Messiah and now they've put him to death. And, and if they put him to death, what are they going to do to us? And so they're there and they're hiding and they're scared and they're nervous. And finally, at long last, Jesus comes. He appears to them. And what are his words? Peace be with you. How can he say that to them? Here's how he can say it. Jesus can come and meet his disciples in the midst of all that. And he can look at them and he can say, peace be with you. Because he's the author of peace. Because he has gone into the grave. He took our sin upon him on the cross. He received the just judgment of God for it. And he rose again from the dead. And because he's accomplished that work, he can take two parties and he can make them right. Once we're enemies of God. But because Christ has brought down the wall of hostility, because of his grace and his mercy, there can now be peace between those two. And here is the, here is the reality. The reality is that peace can govern anything and everything in your life. Does it always? Let me ask you this morning as you're here. Any fears? Yeah. Yeah. We all have fears. I just got on an airplane on Thursday in Rome, scared out of my gourd, because I don't like flying, number one, which is, which is a real complete irony because I'm in the Air Force, right? Caitlin said, somebody said, why didn't your dad join the Navy? Ha, ha, ha. Because I, I, I get seasick. Um, a lot worse than I get airsick, okay? I got on a plane in Rome with Caitlin, scared for two reasons. One, terrorists are blowing airports up in Europe, okay? And I was really, genuinely, no kidding, scared. And I hate flying. And you would hate flying next to me. Because every time the plane shakes and shimmies, I'm the guy that's opening my shade to look out and make sure the wing is still on and it, there's nothing going on out there as if I can do something about it. Jody won't even fly to me, next with me. She, she gets a seat somewhere else on the plane so that she doesn't have to endure that, okay? It's bad. It was so bad that I opened my shade at one point and the guy behind me started groaning. Really? Now, I mean, I thought, that's not a big deal. It really is a big deal. When you don't like something, when you fear, what is my fear of? Well, it may be irrational. The doc told me earlier after the morning service that it was an irrational fear. And I said, yeah, but it's a fear. It's a fear of dying. You want to know. It's a fear of not being in control. Right? It's a fear of not being the one at the stick and knowing that, hey, if this thing's going down, I could do something to save it. 
I could rescue us all. It's a fear of, of not being in control of the situation, whatever that situation is. And it is a fear that if that plane suddenly starts going down, I'm going to die. And I fear that. What are your fears? The, the overarching, the overriding truth in my life, however, is what? That because of my relationship with Christ, because by faith, through His grace and His mercy, I have been made right with the Creator of the world. What can they do to me? What can death do to me? Will death hold me? No. My Savior rose again from the grave. And He's promised that I will rise again as well. And I will live with Him in glory. Do do I believe that? Sometimes I doubt that. And that's why I have fear. But do you see, it's not, that the, it's not that I don't have access to the truth that can change my heart and give me an operating worldview that allows me to overcome that fear. And the question this morning is, do you know that? Do you have access to that truth in your life? Is it a reality for you that you are right with the creator of the universe? See, that's the ultimate question. That's why when Jesus comes to his disciples, he can say, peace be with you. And they can be still quaking in their boots, but they have access to the truth. And that is, he has made the way clear. That they may be still hunting them. Listen, what Jesus wasn't saying was, he wasn't coming to the disciples and he didn't say to them, hey, all those guys that are looking for you out there, don't worry about them, I took care of them. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus doesn't come to him and say, hey, you've got nothing to worry about. Don't worry. Don't worry about the Romans. Don't worry about the Jews. Everything's going to be A-OK. I've got you covered. Peter would ultimately be crucified upside down. Paul, tradition has it, lost his head. Right? So what he wasn't telling them was, hey, look, it's okay. The world's at peace out there. What he was saying was, everything's right in the universe with you and your creator. And you can have peace. Even though the world is quaking, even though the foundations of the world are jacked up and messed up, even though you've got sin in your past and there will be sin in your future, okay? Listen, if you're here this morning, some of your fears may be that God's not going to receive you and accept you because of who you've been and what you've done. And you know what? There's peace for that. Because being a Christian is not about being a good guy or a good girl. It's about receiving and resting in the work that Jesus has already done for you. He took your sin on the cross. The penalty has been paid. And there's a bonus, right? The bonus is that he credits the righteousness of Jesus into your account. That's what makes the peace with God possible. It's not that you come to faith and then you get it all together and you've you've made the way and you're living life and everything's good and you never sin anymore. Don't believe that lie. You will still struggle all the days of your life with the old man, with the old flesh. Your challenge is to believe that God receives you. 
because of the work of Christ alone. Here's what Martin Luther said in the 1500s. He was a monk. He's the guy that nailed the 95 theses to the door. Okay? And he said this in his commentary on Galatians, to be convinced in our hearts that we have forgiveness of sins and peace with God by grace alone is the hardest thing. To be convinced in our hearts that we have forgiveness of sins and peace with God by grace alone is the hardest thing. And it really is. Where are you at this morning? Are you struggling? Do you have fears? Prompted by things in your past? Things that may lie in your future? The cloud that you're desperately in right now in the midst of the present? What is it? Where are your fears? What are they? The invitation, I think, and the encouragement that Jesus gives as he offers us his peace is that in the midst of whatever, wherever, however, we can have it. And it comes to us by way of the gospel. Not some magic voodoo. It isn't some gird yourself up and get everything right. It's by the wonderful truth of the gospel of grace. Let's look at what follows. The second thing you'll see is he doesn't just leave us there. He comes, he offers his peace, which comes through grace, and then he gives us his power, which enables us. Now, this is a a little bit of a strange passage. If you were to pick up a commentary at this point and start reading, you're going to pick up this commentary, you'd pick up that commentary, you'd pick up a third commentary. Guess what? You're probably going to get three different stories on what exactly is going on here, okay? And so um, I'm going to just set the record straight. I don't think it makes any difference. Because here's what's happening. Jesus has his disciples there in the room. And one of the things that we know is that Jesus has promised that he is going to leave one. He's going to send one who will be our encourager, who will be our helper. And that is his spirit. Okay. And so in this passage, we get this kind of strange, you know, happening when Jesus in verse 22. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, theologians, right, guys probably sitting around with too much time on their hands, get really wrapped up in this because he's not supposed to give the Spirit until when? Well, Pentecost. That's when the Spirit's supposed to come. So what's going on in this passage? I mean, Jesus is breathing on him, the Spirit's doing stuff. and I mean, what's happening? And you know what? I don't think it really makes any difference. Because in the end, he promised his Spirit. And whether or not this is like a foretaste of the Spirit or this is the Spirit being given to the disciples who will once again receive the empowering work of the Spirit in Pentecost when it comes and and they're able to speak in in foreign languages so that all these people who have come to celebrate Pentecost will hear their, you know, the gospel in their own language. Whichever two it is or, or a combination or a third one, It doesn't make any difference because it's a fulfillment of everything that has come up to this point anyways. God is going to bless us. Jesus is going to send his spirit and his spirit will aid us and empower us in what? Putting to death the old man and putting on the new man. His spirit is going to empower the apostles 
to do those things that they could not otherwise do the same way His Spirit empowers you to do those things that you would not otherwise do, i.e. begin with a confession of the Lord Jesus as your Savior. And then move on from there to, right, love your neighbor, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Do you think you can do that in your own? No. Not on your life. You need the empowering work of the Spirit. You need the gifts of grace. You need the fruit of the Spirit in your life. You need all of those things and order that. What? You will carry out what he asks you to do in the end. And in this passage, he goes on and we see the purpose which guides us. So just know this, right? As you come to faith in Jesus, if you're on the other side and you're looking at it and you're thinking to yourself, you know, God asks for a lot from us, right? I mean, you look at the word, you can be a little bit overwhelmed. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. How many of you have got that one down? Well, your, your pastor doesn't, okay? I still struggle with that. Along with any number of other things that you'd be terrified to know about. So, but look, so there are all sorts of things that he's asking of us. That we will only begin to understand and only begin to make movement towards if he empowers us to get there. So if you're on the one side and you're thinking to yourself, I could never be and do what he asked me to be and do, guess what? He gives you the grace to be and do who he's called you to be and do. You don't have to worry about it because he empowers you to do it. Right? And some of you may just be wrestling with the fact that, hey, you know, gosh, I'm really not in the ball game. I'm really not fishing, all right? Because we want every member fishing here at Lake Oconee Presbyterian Church. That means we want every member using their gifts. You may be saying to yourself, you know, I'm not, I'm not really in a ball game because I'm kind of scared and I'm kind of nervous and I'm fearful of this or that or the other and I don't think I could do a good job or blah, 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 whatever it is, right? Well, guess what? That's why he gives you the gifts of the Spirit. He has gifted you. He has already empowered you to do what he's called you to do because he's given the Spirit to you. Exactly the way he gave it to his scared apostles, disciples in the room that day on his resurrection. So what does he ask you to do? He asks you to take the message of the gospel out to the world. And that's this really strange part at the very end that you're, you're probably already scratching your head over. Look at it in verse 23. If any, if you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. All right. What in the world does that mean? If you forgive anyone's sins, they are who's doing who forgives sins? God. He is the one that forgives sins. I I love John Piper on this point. He does a really good job, I think, encapsulating the idea. Here's what he says. He says, what Jesus means is this. When you tell people about what I have done, speaking my word, about my work, and the power of my spirit, I am the one speaking through you. So that if anyone believes your word, I forgive their sins. And if anyone does not believe your words, I don't forgive them. And since you are my voice and my truth, I speak of you forgiving them and you withholding forgiveness. I think that makes beautiful sense, right? 
Here it is. You and I, as we trust in Christ, we're to be salt and light into the world. We're to go out into the world and we're his mouthpiece. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians, right, that you and I are part part of the whole ministry of reconciliation. It is we carry the good news that you can be made right with God out into the world. And as you go out into the world and you take that message with you, a simple message of God's grace and his mercy, and you spread it. When people believe it, their sins are forgiven. When they reject it, their sins are held to their account. And that's what it means. And I think that gets at the heart, generally speaking, of what it is that's going on when Jesus says that. You take this message, they receive it, their sins are forgiven. You take the message to them, they reject it, their sins are held against them. It's boiled down to that. But notice that he sends them. Right? As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. All wrapped up. Disciples with fear, disciples not feeling like they have enough, they don't have the power, they don't have the ability, they don't have the gifts, and then sending them out into the world to do something that they would otherwise be completely blind and unable to do. But the risen Savior comes, and he does it. Listen, you hear this morning, no machine guns. No burp guns. No angry residents in Jerusalem searching for you. But there may be a haunting fear or two. There may be a lingering struggle. Lingering sin in your past. There may be a struggle in your heart. There, You may be here this morning. You've never actually trusted in Christ alone for your salvation. You may still be trying to hold it together. To be a good person. I think the message this morning begins, you need to be grounded in his peace, empowered by his spirit, and alive by his purpose. I would love the chance. If you're still strangled by fear, whatever it is, I would love the opportunity to talk to you about it. I'd love the opportunity to hear what your struggle is and encourage you the message of grace, wherever you are. Jesus comes and he offers what nobody else can offer you. And that is his peace. And it truly is a peace which passes all understanding. And it really does guard our hearts and our minds. No matter the fear, no matter the struggle, no matter the sin, it's available to all of us. Let's pray. Father, we would thank you this morning. We would give you praise for your glory, for your grace, for your mercy, for the Lord Jesus, the one who rose from the grave, that we would have new life. Lord, we thank you for this very day. We would ask that you would be at work. You would be at work doing what only you can do, drawing our hearts to you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.